This week on Flyover from NPR News, how the Trump era has redefined a nation of immigrants. I'm Carrie Miller, and I'm broadcasting this week from KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona. It's the perfect place to be one year after Election Day to talk about the defining issue of Donald Trump's campaign. The wall, if he builds it, would rise not far from here. Business owners in the southwest and across flyover country wonder what might happen to their immigrant workforce if new restrictions go into place. There's a sense of urgency to a debate that has long simmered in American politics. Today on Flyover, I want to hear how the conversation has changed where you live. Call us at 1-83-FLYOVER-1, and Flyover starts after this news. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover from NPR News, a show about American identity in turbulent times. Today, I'm hosting the show from KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona. We came here to ask in the years since Donald Trump was elected how he's reshaped the debate, the views and the values of Americans on immigration. And here's what I mean by that. The Muslim ban may be held up in court. The wall may not be paid for. Many undocumented people continue to live and work in the U.S. despite the president's vows to deport them. But Donald Trump represents a skepticism about what was a central story of America, that we welcome the world's hardworking, talented, freedom-seeking people, and that we end up getting back as much as we give. President Lyndon Johnson thought of it like this. The land flourished because it was fed from so many sources— because it was nourished by so many cultures and traditions and peoples. Here's what I hope you'll think about as we begin our conversation. If you're a first or second generation American, does it feel like the community around you, wherever you live, wants and needs and values your commitment to the United States? And if you, like the president, are also skeptical about immigration, documented or not, what's at the core of your concern? The number is 1-833-596-8371. That's 1-83-FLYOVER-1. You can talk to me about it on Twitter. It's at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R, hashtag Flyover Radio. So first or second generation American, does it feel like the community around you, wherever you live, including here in Phoenix and in the Southwest, wants and needs and values your commitment to the U.S.? And if you're skeptical about immigration, whether documented or not, what's at the core of your concern? One eight three flyover one. So we're beginning here in Phoenix with Michel Morisco. He's the senior editor for the Fronteras Desk here at KJZZ. And I asked him what has changed at the southern border in the year since President Trump was elected. Definitely the rhetoric uh, has has contributed a lot to the demise of illegal immigration. Numbers had already been dropping, so let's start there. You're you're absolutely right. But by the time President Trump became, by the time candidate Trump became President Trump, those numbers were down 
Some of those areas had had reductions of 30 and 40%. The number of Central American immigrants at certain points during the Obama administration were surging in places like the Rio Grande Valley and tiny Yuma sector and and southwestern Arizona. Uh, Those numbers started declining rapidly as well. There's definitely been a change in, in how we look at the border right now. Like this is not the same border that it was even two years ago. And when you say that, Michelle, do you mean that it is not the it's not the situation that Republicans for so long have been raising alarms about? When the Trump administration started uh, a border wall prototype building in Southern California, in San Diego, uh, the attorney general for California came out and used the, the administration's own public statements about how much illegal immigration has dropped to then tell the administration, we are suing you as a state of California because there is no need, by your own data, there is no need for this type of enforcement. Like this is not a high trafficking zone any longer. It really hasn't been when you look at the apprehension and seizure numbers. It really hasn't been a major zone in quite a few years. And that's happened here in Arizona as well. I was going to say, so most people in Arizona would say this has been a problem for a long time. It is not the problem that it used to be. And we don't need a solid barrier at the border to stop people from coming over. That's already happening. How do Arizonans think about this? So there's a couple of different dynamics at play here. If you live along the border itself, I mean, you're, you're still experiencing drug trafficking. You're still experiencing small groups of isolated people are still continuing to tread across the border. That means they're still cutting through, for example, your property. Um, when it comes to those major scenes that we would see in the news, I've covered them ad nauseum over the years. I'm talking uh, high-speed chases with 15 people packed into a small Honda Civic, uh, being chased by the U.S. Border Patrol and state police through midtown Tucson, Arizona, population roughly 1 million. That type of experience has diminished greatly. We would have rolling gunfights up and down Interstate 10 between human smugglers fighting to steal a load of human beings from another smuggler. Uh, Those types of pirate acts are something from the past at this point. On a micro level, these Arizona ranchers who live along the border, yeah, they're still experiencing it. But going back to 2004, I was standing uh, with a Border Patrol agent uh, who uh, I I was talking to a Border Patrol agent in little town of Naco, Arizona. He said, man, yesterday we had a group of people here. It looked like the start of a 5K run. Uh, 50 people lined up at the border as a group crossing the the old barbed wire fence and then just running north as fast as they could. That sort of bonsai run, which is what old-timer Border Patrol agents used to call that sort of thing, uh, just doesn't happen here in Arizona any longer. So does that mean then, Michelle, that people's opinions and attitudes about both illegal immigration and legal immigration have changed? Yeah, I think they have. When we when we talk about, for example, let, let's go into legal immigration for a bit. There's always been a pushback against uh, legal immigration in this country, right? I mean, 
The U.S. Border Patrol itself was formed as a group that was supposed to stop Chinese nationals from crossing from Mexico into the U.S. Huh. So there's always been this this pushback against um, Italians, you know, for example, Irish. Um, lately, in the past two decades, uh, Mexican. Um, Central Americans have sort of fallen into the same dynamic, um, but they've never been at a number here in this country that that was significant enough to cause, for example, a perceived threat, you know, although right now I will say Attorney General Jeff Sessions remarks about MS-13 and the Central American migrant crisis is definitely something new that we're experiencing uh, when it comes to the where the dialogue and the conversation is headed. So you're saying you think attitudes have changed about illegal immigration. What about legal immigration? Because Arizona is seeing a number of refugee populations come in. Arizona has not had a uh, a major influx. So while there is a significant purchasing power, for example, by people from these temporary protected status countries, uh, there, there isn't a perceived threat to example, for example, to jobs in, in this in this state as a result of people coming in from these different countries. So what will happen eventually once refugees are, are established and begin growing in an economic power and an employment power in Arizona, that remains to be seen. When you talk about immigration with people in Arizona and the West, do you sense that opinions either for or against it flow from economic concerns, political concerns, something cultural? When you talk about immigration, you're talking about globalization. You're talking about market forces and powers that are well beyond any one person's ability uh, barely to comprehend, let alone to manage. So when you do see that jobs are being outsourced from the United States to a plant in Mexico, and you know that this is happening because they're going to have to pay people less to do the same job, when that is your job itself, that becomes a real problem for people. You know, the, it, it's, it becomes something far more primal than... Mm you know, a race and ideology, it becomes a, a real threat. And this does happen. I mean, we, we do have companies that are here in the US that that do cross into Mexico and and have their products developed there um, in order to then sell them back to American consumers. I mean, there's definitely a tangible frustration with the entire concept. And this is this globalization that some people embrace and, and some people do not. Michelle Morisco from KJZZ here in Phoenix, Arizona, and I'm hosting Flyover Today, a show about who we are in turbulent times from Phoenix. We're talking about the year since Donald Trump's election, and we're discussing how Americans see his agenda and his vision of immigration. I want to hear from you if you're a first or second generation American. Does it feel like the community around you values your commitment and your contribution to your community? And if you, like the president, are skeptical about immigration, let's hear from you as well today. One eight three fly over one to the phones now to Laura, listening right here in Mesa, Arizona. Hi, Laura. Thanks so much for waiting. And, and tell me how you're thinking about this. Well, I have a little different view than some people, I believe. My mm -hmm. father was uh, immigrated from Europe, 
uh, he is, so I'm a second generation American here. And he came the legal way. He came here, he was sponsored by a family, he served in the military, and he did other things, learned the language, learned the history. So, you know, we have legal ways for immigrants to get here. One of the things that disturbs me about this trend that we have right now is that um, illegal immigration seems to be encouraged, and that makes it like we don't have a law and a legal path towards citizenship. It makes that as though we're ignoring the law. Yet we have so many good laws. It seems that if we have this view of our laws mean nothing, that we threaten the good laws we have, such as civil rights and other things. Laura, I I have about a minute, but I just want to ask you why you say illegal immigration is encouraged. Why is that? There's a lot of places where there's bad press about uh, sanctuary cities having difficulties with the immigration authorities, things like that going on, where a lot of the press is around, well, these poor people who immigrated illegally, they're being they're being uh, picked on. Okay. Laura, I really appreciate the call and good to have you here from uh, the Phoenix area because for the first time on Flyover, we are live in Phoenix. So if you're listening in this area, I'd love to hear from you. It's 183-FLYOVER1. Talk to me about this on Twitter, at Carrie NPR, hashtag Flyover Radio. I know not every public radio station can play our program live, but we do want to hear from you. Join our conversations on Twitter. Use the hashtag Flyover Radio. What topics would you like us to take up in a future show? You can leave us a message at 183-FLYOVER-1. You're listening to Flyover from NPR News. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Flyover. It's a show about American identity in turbulent times. I'm hosting the show today from KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona. And we came here to ask in the years since Donald Trump was elected how he's reshaping the debate, the views, and the values of Americans on immigration. I'm asking to hear from you if you're a first or second generation American, whether you think the community in which you live values your commitment and your contribution. Also want to hear from you if you, like the president, are skeptical about immigration, documented or not, and what's at the core of your concern. Join this discussion, 183-FLYOVER1, and on Twitter, at CarrieMPR, hashtag Flyover Radio. Our guest today, Tony Suarez, is executive vice president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Council, And he's with us today from Virginia Beach. And, Tony, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you for having me on the program. Efren Perez is associate professor of political science at Vanderbilt University. He's in Nashville, Tennessee. And, Efren, welcome. Uh, Thank you. Good to have you on the show. And, and Efren, have you sensed a change given the way that President Trump has been talking about this in the year, well, even before when he was campaigning, talking about immigration? Have you sensed a, 
a shift in the way Americans think about it or respond to the way the president talks about it? Uh, so I wouldn't say that it's actually a shift uh, in terms of the conversation itself, except that now uh, with uh, him as president, you actually have a bully pulpit or a megaphone behind a particular way of viewing what the implications of uh, immigration might be. Um, and in some ways, I think I, I would encourage um, your listeners to to really think about what's really at the core of some of this. Immigration is just one manifestation of something bigger uh, that's going on here that is roiling some Americans the wrong way. And that really has to do with changing demographics, right? Uh, immigration is one contributing factor to increased diversity in the nation. You see it in statistics like, uh, you know, Latinos becoming, you know, one-fourth of the nation by 2050, if you believe those mm -hmm. forecasts. You right. see it in the increased growth of Asian Americans, et cetera. And so really the conversation, I think, is, is, is a lot larger uh, than just immigration per se. It really has to do with um, how do we want to accommodate or integrate this heterogeneity, this diversity that basically has landed on our lap? And I would say we've been here before, right? So there are ways to, to, to think about that. Tony, I also want to be clear here that when we talk about immigration and President Trump's views on it, we're not only talking about what he says about undocumented or illegal immigration. President Trump favors sharp restrictions on legal immigration, and that was quite different from many of the other Republican candidates or presidents. So do you have a sense of what drives the president's interest in cutting legal immigration? And do you think it's for the reasons that Efren just described? Well, I agree with Efren. I think our history shows us that we, as, as a country, have always struggled with accepting this new diversification or change within our country, whether it was the Italians, the Irish, those of Asian descent, there has always been this uh, struggle to accept the change that comes into our nation. I think this is a problem that is 30 years in the making. I don't think this started with President Trump. I think we reached the boiling point that's 30 years in the making because there has not been any kind of true immigration legislation passed since the days of Reagan. Yet it's an, it's an issue that every president and every presidential candidate since that time has tried to answer, has struggled with, and has tried to bring to a vote in the House and the Senate. To, um, to take a, a portion of the scripture a little bit out of context, there's a, there's a verse in the book of Psalms that says, I lift mine eyes to the hill from whence cometh my help. I look at this issue and I don't necessarily look to the White House as my source of frustration or my source of hope. I look uh -huh. towards Capitol Hill. And I say, Capitol Hill, these representatives that were elected to represent we the people uh, honestly have failed us for decades now by failing to pass real legislate a real legislative answer that would help solve the crisis that we currently find ourselves in. Uh, let me go back to the phones because we have full phone lines here. If you're trying to get in and you're getting a busy signal, please try us back. I want to hear from you on this. And to Comfort, listening in Minneapolis. So, Comfort, thanks so much for waiting. And how are you thinking about this conversation so far? Oh, thank you. I, it's really uh, an interesting conversation. Thank you so much for having it. 
Um, I wanted to just um, contribute, you know, as a young first-generation African immigrant from Zimbabwe, I personally mm-hmm. do not feel that my contributions or uh, even I, as a, as a young woman in academia, am valued. Um, I don't feel welcome. As one of the speakers said, uh, this is bigger. There are bigger issues than just immigration. There's more endemic, uh, endemic um, systemic issues like racism, sexism, homophobia, just a lot of isms that I've had to struggle with since I've been here for the last 13 years. But I think President Trump has really brought those things more, to more light where I'm actually feeling them. I actually have physiological reactions to things like criminal justice system issues now. And I've reached for the first time, I'm raising my children who are, who are biracial and are American citizens here. But for the first time, I'm feeling an urge to want to go back home. I'm really, really? feeling homesick. Mm. So that, that's my contribution for today. Really, thank you so much for the call, and good to have your experience, Efren. This is the thing I think we have to that we're going to wrestle with in this discussion, and we have politically that, despite the evidence of the economic benefits of immigration, it seems like it's one of those issues that Americans decide on a on a visceral level, and that the facts and the numbers don't seem to matter as much as the anecdotal observation. I wonder what you'd say to that. Uh, I mean, you're pretty close to what we find empirically. Like if we if we look at public opinion data, right, and we take Americans' responses to survey questions to measure, say, their threat from job competition as well as um, cultural concerns, right, uh, the mm-hmm. cultural impact of, of, of immigrants on society. And we wanted to predict their level of uh, opposition to illegal and legal immigration. Uh, we're talking here at least 20 years worth of data. Self-interest in an, in an economic sense is an, a very inconsistent and weak predictor of Americans' uh, opposition to immigration. What it generally tends to boil down to is this big umbrella term that we call um, what I'm going to call cultural concerns. Okay. And under there, you can fit things like uh, anti-immigrant sentiment that's very specific to Latinos in general. Uh, mm-hmm. One of your callers tried to make distinctions between Mexicans and non-Mexicans. The data also show that that hardly is the case. Uh, people really don't make fine-grained distinctions that way. And that's actually where the big wellspring of this is. This is why I think to outside observers it looks so irrational, right, that you can give people all these facts like um, immigration specifically from Mexico is down, right? Why do we want right. a border wall? Well, really, although they can't articulate it, the threat is not really about more immigrants coming. It's about immigrants, their kids, their grandkids, their great-grandkids that are already actually here. And the threat is what are we, how are we going to respond to all these newcomers in our midst, right? Um, but the irrationality is that the trigger here isn't some sort of objective indicator, right? Um, I often use the following example with some of my students uh, in a class that I teach, right? If the argument is um, that opposition to immigration has to do with uh, job competition, right? It's a very, it's a zero-sum bargain. A job for immigrants means one less job for a native-born American. And, and so. you know that that's one of the economic arguments that gets made. Exactly. In the, but in let's, say we introduce, let's say we introduce parity into the market, right? Uh-huh. Uh, it's not a zero-sum market. Are we willing to say that opposition to immigration goes away? 
and generally the students will say no. And if you uh-huh, probe right. them and probe them, what will they come up with? They'll come up with words and phrases that basically boil down to, I really don't like these kind of people here, right? Um, and that's really what we're talking about. And the U.S. is not unique in this regard, right? Um, a lot of what, why it does feel so visceral is not due to self-interest. It's got to do with basically, you know, ethnocentric concerns, right? Too many of you and not enough of me. Let me share this from Lori listening in San Diego, California. She says, second generation American, this region had a real problem in recent months with high speed crashes between immigrants and ICE, the border control. She says, we're a border city. We have the busiest border crossing in the world. The apprehensions are making everyone's lives more dangerous. And Kevin in New York City says he's skeptical of immigration. He's concerned that all of these disparate groups will be able to come together and form a cohesive country. And, of course, that's been a concern that has been around for a long time. To the phones to Leslie listening in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Uh, Leslie, what are you thinking about in this discussion so far? Well, uh, several things. I'm a second-generation American. Uh, My parents, when they came over from the Netherlands after World War II, made the very very strong decision that English would be the first language in our house and that later we were brought brought into the Dutch language, a little bit of Dutch culture, but we were taught from the beginning why my parents had come and what they valued about being American and the, the, the feeling and what we were taught in the home was that they had come to a land where the law ruled. And it wasn't about class and privilege, but it was about the law and those fundamental rights. These are things which my parents saw, you know, executed beautifully in the Nuremberg trials. And so what Mm -hmm. you find now, though, is that people no longer have a sense that they not only have rights, but that they have responsibilities. And that sense of pride in those values, understanding what our principles are, respecting the law, and at times, standing up against the law when you feel you must, but being willing to take those consequences. This kind of um, visceral belief in the American Testament, if you will, no longer seems to be present. And that has got to be what unites the people who come from every corner of the earth and every different religion and color. Uh, And Leslie, good to have your call, because I think you've raised something that Efren was getting at. And Tony, that's this idea of um, assimilation, for lack of a of a better word here. Will they and it was expressed by one of our callers. Will people who come here be able to live by the values and the principles and, and some of the things that our caller just said? Americans worry a lot about that. Is there any evidence that that doesn't happen in this long history that we have as a nation of immigrants? I think our history shows that they do assimilate. I'm a second-generation immigrant. My father was born in the country of Colombia. I was born and raised here. English was the first language in my home. My father came legally into the United States. I was at his citizenship hearing in 1988. I remember Mm -hmm. my father sitting with my brother and I as children and reading us American history books and teaching us to memorize the the names of the presidents of the United States. And he was proud to be an American, to wear the American flag, to learn the the Star-Spangled Banner. I think our history teaches us 
again, going back to a point that Ephraim and I have both made, that there's always this concern when the first generation immigrant comes. I, I, I used to run a community center in Norfolk, Virginia for immigrants, and I would, I'd speak to both immigrants and I'd also speak to those that had concerns about immigrants coming in. And I'd show the history, for one example, of, of Little Italy in New York City, which 117 years ago was this booming, thriving community where Italian, I, Italian was the primary language, yet they were proud to be American they were proud to be American, but a hundred years later, this thriving, booming community of Italians is now a few blocks of T-shirt shops and restaurants. Because as the generations continue, there is more and more of an assimilation. I don't think that the best judgment can be used on. I don't think you can judge assimilation by the first generation. I think yeah. you have to look to the second and the third generation. And I would also add that when we when we complain about uh, this issue of uh, of the you know the amount of immigrants that have come over, we have to ask ourselves, who exactly is at fault? My mentor, Sam, uh, Reverend Samuel Rodriguez, uh, said, "You are what you tolerate." Well, our country has tolerated this issue of people coming, and so who who's at fault? the The individual that crosses the border. Or is it the American businesses that have continued and perpetually hire those that cross the border? There's there's almost two proverbial signs at the border, one that says do not enter, but then there's a larger sign that has Las Vegas lights on it, and it says uh, help wanted inquire within, which <laughs> exactly. has brought us to the issue that we have today. Yeah, Tony, you know, yeah, Efringen, just a second here. I, I want to just mention that there are contradictions, obviously, and ambivalence in the way Americans feel about this, too. I mean, you see an economist poll where 77 percent of Americans agree we are a nation of immigrants, and yet you find a lot of ambivalence, I think, that we're hearing today on our calls and we see in the in the political debate about what that means in the here and now. I'm going to grab a call. Tony, I will come to you in just a second. I'm going to grab a call here from uh, Larita in Phoenix. Hi, Larita. Glad you're listening. What What do you want to say to this? Well, regarding what the uh, gentleman said about it's been 30 years since um, we've done anything with immigration reform. Uh-huh. In those 30 years, um, this country has raised a generation of young people known as the Dreamers. And it is just appalling to me that um, the the law that was protecting the uh, Dreamers, the DACA, has been rescinded. And now these children who have grown up completely in our country um, don't know any other country because they can't travel back and forth. Um, these gifted young Americans now have no no recourse. They have no protections. And frankly, I'm at the point where I don't love or respect this country anymore um, because um, of the treatment that we are giving um, and and our lack of responsibility and and caring for for a generation of young Americans. Okay. I'm glad you brought up DACA. Um, mm-hmm. Efren, I wanted to come to you because I think you wanted to get in on this, but just to say yeah. that President Trump uh, rescinded the protection for the children, the legal children of people that came here without documentation. He's kind of thrown it to Congress uh, to try to figure this out, I think, in the next 90 days. You wanted to say what? Uh, what I wanted to do was actually run a thread to some uh, a theme that I see sort of emerging here, right? And this is sort of the story that um, it, during yesteryear, when we had previous waves of immigrant, we had uh, sort of plucky foreigners that came here and they wanted to be American, and gosh darn it, they assimilated, right? Mm-hmm. That's wishful thinking. 
this is actually uh, some a story that Americans made up during the 1970s when they looked back at the turn of the century immigration. And it's sort of the positive gloss uh, that we like to put to that last massive wave of immigration. The reality is most immigrants, their kids and their grandkids on average assimilated into American society under duress. Now, when it comes to the current wave of immigration, there is plenty of data, but I'm going to just underline one basic point here. And Efren, I'm going to interrupt you here for just a second. We'll come right back to it. But you're listening to Flyover. I'm hosting the show today from KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona. The discussion continues. Stay with us. If you appreciate hearing voices from across flyover country, check out some of our past episodes at flyoverradio.org or on our podcast. We've talked about guns and religion, health care, and whether it's still possible to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And you can help others find us by leaving a review of our podcast. You're listening to Flyover from NPR News. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Flyover, a show about who we are in turbulent times. I'm usually in St. Paul, Minnesota, because this is a show from NPR News. But today I'm hosting the show from KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, as we take note of the year of since Donald Trump's election. And we talk about how Americans see his agenda and his vision of immigration. Tony Suarez is with us. He's executive vice president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Council, an effort Perez with us, an associate professor of political science at Vanderbilt University in Nashville. And Efren, um, forgive me for interrupting you there. Will oh, you, uh, yeah, make your point and then we'll go right back oh, to the sure. phones. Interested to hear yeah, what you so say. You're, you're call- There's been at least two or three callers that have lamented the presence of some individuals who seem to be either ungrateful uh, about being in the United States or resistant to the idea of becoming Americans. Now, I'm not going to tell you that one or two of those individuals don't exist, but this is actually what data uh, are for. And so the following, actually, if you if you go around and look at census uh, surveys, which are the benchmark when it comes to uh, you know administering uh, public opinion surveys, um, what we know is if you actually array immigrants their children, and their grandchildren on something like English proficiency and the primacy Uh of spoken English in the home, what do you find? You find that over time, by that third generation, Spanish is basically uh, descending and the use of English in the home is ascending. Which is and, and what you're quite, saying is that that's usually a sign of, of what we would traditionally think of as assimilation. That is one of the yardsticks, right? I mean, right. to put another way, uh, essentially foreign languages come to die here in the United States. And Spanish is not an exception to that. The one main difference here is that it's taking maybe half a generation longer. But when all is said and done and you let the chips fall where they do, the, the general trend is still the same. Immigrants in this era are still learning English, and they are 
basically losing their grip on the quote-unquote mother tongue. You get the okay. same pattern, for example, and I'll sort of stop here. Um, if you ask them um, the degree to which they identify as Americans or with their nation of origin, you essentially see across the generations increasing levels of identification as Americans at the expense of their identification as quote-unquote ethnics. So this mm -hmm. is actually where it gets tricky with the politics. Those right. trends are in motion, but the type of language that politicians sometimes use can yep. basically reverse uh, some of these patterns, at least in the short and medium run. Right, which is another of way of saying, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you've just tuned into Flyover, it's a conversation about immigration and how, in the years since President Trump was elected, he's reshaped the debate, the views, perhaps the values that Americans hold on immigration. And I'm asking you, if you're a first or second generation American, does it feel like the community around you and wherever you live? I want to hear from you wherever you are in Flyover Country wants, needs, values your commitment to the United States. And if you like the president, you share his skepticism about immigration, documented or not, what's at the core of your concern? Taking your calls right now, one eight three fly over one We'll get as many calls in as we can. And you can reach me on Twitter, at CarrieMPR, hashtag FlyoverRadio, where Kavina says, from Arizona to New York City, uh, why do some people who immigrated legally use their personal anecdotes to try to dehumanize undocumented people? So she's kind of representing the spectrum, I think, of political views uh, from people um, with different backgrounds in the United States. And Kayla says, as an ESL teacher, this is so important since many of my students are legal, but their parents aren't. And then she says, keep families together. Uh, to John, listening in San Diego, California. Hi, John. Thanks so much for waiting. Hi. What are you thinking about? Uh, well, I, I don't know how much time I'd have. So I, I do have a quick, funny, personal anecdote. But my, my opinion is, uh, you know, I spent some time feeling kind of personally attacked. And the, the title white nationalist came up. And I think that was a little bit of a racist moniker in itself I, and we've come to understand there's a better term economic nationalist uh i grew up believing in the great melting pot uh, i think immigration uh -huh. makes us stronger i am a trump supporter the first time i voted in my life was for trump um i've been around the world 19 countries uh i've worked in information security and you know for military contractors uh i have strong feelings both ways first of all our, our 800 military bases around the world are creating a lot of these immigration crises because our military is destroying functioning societies and then we you know we have a, a duty as a society to help the people that we've displaced on the other hand there's a reason that that there's a a border and i believe that illegal immigrants are being taken advantage of by both business people and politicians I see. and i believe that our immigration system should be improved and i think that a more honest conversation shouldn't be well, look at how racist Trump is because he wants borders. The conversation should be, how can we improve this immigration? And, and I'll just close with my personal anecdote. About well, John, John, let, I, I just I want to know, without the anecdote, if I might, you've said something really interesting there. How do you feel about what the president says about deeper restrictions, very tight restrictions on legal immigration? I hear what you're saying about you know, how the political debate sounds around illegal immigration. But I want to know what you think about the person that you voted for and his thoughts on legal immigration and cutting that back. 
Yeah, I, I think the polemic has outsized what he's actually said on that issue, and I've, and I've seen some numbers, and I don't know what the true numbers is. I don't believe that he wants to close our borders in any kind of serious way. Uh, you know, the, the Muslim ban, quote-unquote, wasn't really a Muslim ban. It was like seven com- countries that were predominantly Muslim and while leaving 89 countries open that were predominantly Muslim. So it was never really about race or uh, religion necessarily. Okay. It was about where the people that were being displaced in the war zones were going and where they were going to go to next. All right. Let, let me take that to Tony. Tony, do you see what the president did with this policy that is, again, back before the courts uh, with banning certain people from certain countries as an overall Muslim ban? And do you think this is this fits well with the president's overall skepticism about immigration? I personally have never considered it a Muslim ban. I agree with the previous caller that this has to do with where these individuals are coming from. Uh, One of your other callers asked about DACA. I'm going to say something that might surprise some, but I think history, and again, the key word is if, history might look back on President Trump's decision to defer DACA as brilliant if Congress passes a permanent legislative solution. Something that we failed to, to bring into the conversation is that there were 10 states that were about to file suit and take DACA to the courts in the same fashion that they took DAPA before the courts, and we know what happened to DAPA. Had this gone to the courts, these 800,000-plus children would have been in danger of possible deportation. DACA, the first word of DACA is deferred, which in its elementary state means I won't deport you today, but I could deport you later. This was never a permanent solution. President Obama, when he when he brought DACA, said this is not permanent. We need a permanent solution. So what President Trump did was he essentially punted the ball back to Congress and put the onus back where it needs to be. And so that's where that's where we're at in this conversation of immigration. And because our president is is very vocal in his opinions of these things, I, I understand why we we why we continue to have a debate or discuss what he says. But by doing so, I think sometimes we forget to put the responsibility back on where it needs to be, which is on our members of the House and the Senate who have the power, the legislative power to represent we the people and enact a law that would be fair and just and would solve this once and for all. Tony, I want to pick up on something and put this to Efren. And Efren, I'll ask if you can keep it a little brief because we have a lot of people that want to get in on this. But when you look at President Obama's administration and the deportations from 2009 to the end of President Obama's term, it's estimated that he deported more than five million people, many of them back over the southern border, Central America and Mexico. Now, President Trump talks a lot about immigration in much more inflammatory ways, just like Tony just said, including his what some people believe was a ban on Muslim countries. But I'd ask you if right now the policies are all that different between the two presidents. If the thrust of the policies are not different, the tone of the rhetoric, the optics behind them are Absolutely uh, yes, different. But and but I want but this what, is why I'm asking you the question though. Are the policies that yes, President Trump talks about it in very different ways, but if we were to lay their policies side by side right now, are they sure. all that different? 
Well, I mean, the thing is, we don't have a, a, an actual piece of legislation that has come out, right? This is actually part of what Tony uh, is sort of speaking to. We have a couple of uh, sort of um, bells and whistles added to pre-existing things. And so, um, yes, what's, what, what's different um, between deferring now versus deferring uh, in six months? Uh, what I'm saying to you objectively, probably not a whole lot subjectively, a lot, right? Because wow. now that welcome mat is completely <laughs> off from under their feet, right? At, at least that's how it feels to a lot of these individuals uh, who, by the way, um, you know, they do want to be here, right? So if the complaint is from many Americans, including some of the callers that you've had on the show, uh, we want people who really want to be American. That is, on average, these DACA recipients. That's who these individuals are. They're basically saying, I have no direct ties anymore to the nation of origin. And quite frankly, I don't even want to go back there. I want to stay in the country that I was socialized in. And so I'm saying, okay, if the argument is you want people that really want to be here, here's your opportunity. And it actually doesn't require that much uh, new legislation, but you're not seeing it passed because politicians are responsive not to people like them, but to people that have basically a harder stance on this issue, right? And so if you're wondering why politicians don't want to do any of this, uh, they're seeing the next election down the line, and they're thinking, mm -hmm. well, who's actually going to come out and vote for me? And it's not uh, going to be DACA recipients. And on Twitter here, a listener says, we face a demographic crisis like Japan. We need young immigrant workers by the millions. And then Samuel says... I'm listening to the subject on immigration. I am Mexican legally in the United States. I do follow the law, and everyone should do the same. And uh, Mehran in Las Vegas, Nevada. Mehran, did I um, did I pronounce your name right, or did I mangle it? Pretty close. All right. Good to have you on the show. Tell me what you were going to say. Thank you. Uh, well, I'm just saying I'm a first-generation immigrant. I'm with, I immigrated here from the Middle East when I was 14 uh -huh. years of age. Um, I've basically, the uh, first thing we did was understand that, hey, this is a new country, we're going to be staying here. Maybe we visit other country, but this is our home. We learned the culture, I learned the, I learned the language. Um, I became a professional, I'm a, phys I'm a chiropractic physician, and since September 11, the mood in the country has changed. Uh, I've had p patients, uh, patients call me personally and tell me that I'm quote-unquote the enemy and they will never come to come see me again. Uh, this has happened uh, more so during uh, immediately after September 11th, but I'm not seeing it as much since the Trump administration taken over. But it continues. The underlying tones are still continues, especially toward immigrants and especially toward uh, Middle Eastern immigrants. Can um, I ask you this, Mayron? What do you think most people misunderstand about your experience and your life in Nevada and in the United States? Um. What you, I mean, I've lived all across the United States. Um, when I first came here, I lived in East Coast in New York State. Uh, I have my first degree out of uh, Buffalo, Western New York, which I love the area. I've lived in mid the uh, Midwest, on Rhode Island, Mississippi River, and I've also lived in the uh, West. And I can tell you that as I moved more, more so toward West, uh, there were more issues uh, toward immigrants than there were in the East Coast for some reason. But then again, I don't know. I haven't been back there in 10, 15 years. I've been in this. I've been in West Coast for 20 years, uh, okay. so I have not visited as much over there as much. But uh, this is my experience. This is something I've, I experience uh, All right. pretty much. I appreciate your call. 
Thanks very much, and and good for sharing your experience. I want to go to Judy in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Hi, Judy. What are you thinking about? Well, I'm I'm thinking um, I'm a soldier, and I've had a lot of my soldiers that are also from different countries, right? And my my concern is if they're good enough to die for our country and put their life on the line, why should we question in regards to they're authorized to be here. You know what I mean? They're, they, they're not welcome here. And I take offense to that because I've lost some soldiers, and they have, no, they have much loyalty and love for this country, and they deserve some respect, too. So they're my battle buddies, and my father's from Peru, South America, and I was born here, but I know how it feels when people kind of question you, but they're loyal brothers and sisters that put their life on the line because this is how desperate and how much they love the United States. Uh, uh, Tony, I think Judy is referring to this measure, I think, that that was in DACA, that if you serve in the military, your path to citizenship is shortened. What do you do you believe that that's a fair bargain? Well, that that's something that has been um, that's a provision or, or something that's been contemplated in, in multiple uh, drafts of legislation. I do. I think it, it's something that some view as fair, and it's something that other countries have uh, included in their immigrate their requirements for immigration. So I don't. I. I think the debate is is. Um, I, I could see it both ways. I do think that if if you serve in the military, I do think that there should be provisions to speed up your ability to become legal within our country. And and to what you said earlier. No, there, there is this debate on immigration, though President Trump is very vocal in what he says. Is what he says any different than what President Bill Clinton used to used to say regarding immigration? Is is a call for a wall any different than Hillary's call for fencing when she was a senator? I think that this is again, we're as Ephraim has said and I have said, we put so much focus on what presidents and presidential candidates say. And unfortunately, we almost get a give some kind of pass to Congress and they never solve this issue. And now the midterm elections are coming up in 2018, 2019. And if we don't solve this, our organization has called on Congress to solve this by Christmas. Give it as a Christmas gift, a permanent legislation solution to these children. Do it by Christmas because the longer this, this takes, in the, the closer we get to 2018, the less chance there, there could be of a legislative solution because now politicians will not care so much about passing laws as they will about winning the next election. I, I'm going to try to squeeze James in Raleigh, North Carolina in here. James, I need you to be concise, but you're concerned about what Tony's saying on Congress. Is that right? Yes, uh, James. Are you? Yeah, point. go ahead. I think Tony, yes, I think Tony is absolutely correct. Congress needs to pass effective le- legislation. Obviously, we need the labor, and so they need to pass legislation so they can come in legally. Too, uh, immigration and terrorism, a little bit different, uh, but the extreme vetting, the vetting that is required, I think that's important. That's all I have. Efren, um, very quickly here, does it look to you like Congress is on any kind of an accelerated timetable on immigration reform that it's been through the many other presidents who wanted to get it done? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, this was actually already a live wire of an issue to begin with under the best of circumstances. And now when you have basically the next election right around the corner, um, I can't imagine that the reaction among uh, members of Congress is going to be, let's work on the most difficult issue uh, that we have (laughs) on our lap.
And the most politically polarizing, right, among all the other issues. Efren, thank you so much. Really good to have you today from Nashville. Appreciate that. Thank you. And Tony, thank you to you. Good to have you today from Virginia Beach. Thank you so much. You can continue the conversation with me on Twitter. It's at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R, hashtag Flyover Radio. And our thanks to KJZZ here in Phoenix for helping us out with this and for all the people that called in from the Arizona area. This is Flyover Radio. I'm Carrie Miller.